Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's open our Bibles once again to the fifth chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And we're studying verse by verse through Luke's Gospel. We're here today in chapter 5, verses 12 through 16. The title of the message is The Power in the Prayer Life. Uh, you recall that uh, in the fifth chapter, the Lord Jesus has called to himself four disciples, Peter and Andrew, James and John. And he has commissioned them to no longer be fishers of fish, but fishers of men. But throughout his ministry, Jesus also often took time to touch and to heal the sick. And we have an episode here of the healing of a man with leprosy. Now, the four gospel writers never make any claim that they wrote down every miracle that Jesus ever performed. In fact, in the Gospel of John chapter 21, we read a denial of that. John says this, and there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written down in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. And so the fact that the Holy Spirit led Luke to record this particular miracle is significant. This is the healing of a man with leprosy. So let's read our text, Luke 5 verse 12. While he was in one of the cities, that's Jesus, Behold, there was a man covered with leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and implored him saying, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And he stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I'm willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he ordered him to tell no one, go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, just as Moses commanded as a testimony to them. But the news about him was spreading even farther and large crowds were gathering to hear him and be healed of their sickness. But Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Now for centuries, leprosy was among the most dreaded of ancient diseases. As you know, it's a skin condition. It causes the nerves to atrophy, which leads to all the other sorts of uh, terrible things. One of the reasons that leprosy was such a feared disease in the ancient world is that there was no earthly cure. Once you had it, uh, it usually progressed to death. It, it was that, it was progressive in nature. It got worse all the time. And as it got worse, it led to disfigurement of the face and of the hands and feet. It was brutal. It left a person spiritually and physically and religiously unclean in the eyes of the community which led to isolation from family and friends. Lepers had to live in colonies by themselves or either alone in the wilderness. There was a law that you could only come within 10 feet of an uninfected person if the wind were calm and 150 feet if the wind were blowing. It ruined a person socially and financially and ultimately it led to death. And so it should not surprise us that uh, through the centuries, leprosy has been put forward as a metaphor for the condition of men's souls. Now think about it. For sin, there is no earthly cure. It is progressive in nature. It goes from bad to worse. It makes a person unfit and unclean in the eyes of God. It separates a person from his creator. It ruins a person spiritually and ultimately it is spiritually fatal. In fact, the scripture says without Christ, we are dead in our sins. And likewise, sinners must come to the Savior the same way this man in the text came to Jesus for physical healing. 
in humility, in desperation, and in faith. Our first point in your outline is the plea of the desperate. This was no doubt a desperate man. That made him humble. The scripture says he fell on his face before Jesus. The Greek word there is proskuneo, where we get the English word prostrate. It means he fell in a heap on his face before the Lord. Now there is nothing magical about that posture when it comes to prayer. What God is most concerned about in our prayer life is the posture of our heart. He makes that very clear in many places of scripture. Psalm 51, for example, verse 17, he says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. That is, we can fake our physical posture. We can give all the indication in the world that we really are humble, but only God knows our heart. And yet oftentimes our physical posture and even our body language can tell a lot about what's going on internally. You saw as I did this morning, the tragedies in London, England, yet another terrorist attack. But, but I'm almost certain this morning, some British man said to another one on the street, keep a stiff upper lip. That's what the British do, don't they? They're stoic and they face tragedy unemotionally. We might say to a young person who's facing difficulty in a sport to, to bow your neck. That is, don't quit, be stubborn. A person who is uh, arrogant or prideful, we may say, looks down their nose at other people. You see what I mean? We use body language, we use posture to indicate what's going on internally. And so this man falling down prostrate likely meant that he recognized the superiority of the one that was addressing him. This was the posture of submission. It was also the posture of desperation. He was willing to forego all social proprieties just to get to talk to Jesus. Remember I, I said it, it was socially improper for him to get this close to anyone, let alone Jesus. But he was willing to be thought poorly of and even to be sanctioned by the culture so long as he could get close to Christ. He was that desperate. Note the degree of his condition which led to his desperation. He was covered in leprosy. He'd had it for a while. It had progressed to the point where death was certainly imminent. This reminds us of when a person recognizes the degree of their own sinfulness. Just last week in the sermon when Jesus uh, where Peter recognized that Jesus is God, not just a man in his boat, he said, go away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. When the Apostle Paul spoke of his own life before his salvation, he called himself the chief of sinners. Jesus told the story of two men who went down to pray, a tax collector, which would be socially unacceptable, and a Pharisee who was self-righteous. And when the publican came time to pray, he could not even lift his head up through humility. He just simply cried out in desperation, Lord, have mercy upon me, the sinner. This is the prayer of desperation. It's the prayer of humility. This was the prayer of this man who prostrated himself before Christ. And he exhibited his faith. He said to Jesus, if you are willing, you can make me clean. He had no doubt observed Jesus healing other people. He'd heard about it. And now he comes before Jesus and with no doubt in his voice, he says, you can do it if you're willing. He is able, but is he willing? It reminds us of what the Hebrew boys said to Nebuchadnezzar when he threatened to throw them in the fiery furnace. He said, O king, our God is able to deliver us. 
Do you believe that God is able to heal? He is able to save? He is. Now, I often pray this way for the sick when I go to the hospitals. I'm not God. I ask the Lord to intervene and save. But I'll pray something like this. Lord, you created this person's body just as you created everything. You are capable of healing them. And I ask you to do that. But I'm not God. Sometimes in his sovereignty, he chooses to prolong, uh, prolong life. Sometimes he does not. Just this past Friday in this room, we had a funeral of a young lady who many of you have been praying for, for months, that the Lord would intervene in her life and heal her and prolong her life. He chose not to do that. She passed away. So people often ask me the question, why does God heal some and not others? And I have to tell you, I do not know. I don't have the mind of God. He is God and we are not. And yet I know this, He is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we could ever ask or think. We also know that he's a compassionate Savior. And that is our second point, the compassion of the Savior. Throughout this study of Luke, what you're going to see, and we've seen already, noted on several occasions, the compassion and the kindness of Jesus towards hurting people. And that's never more clearly on display than here in chapter 5. People in that part of the world and in that epoch of history feared contracting leprosy. They would not come near an infected person. Jesus did more than coming near to him. It says here that he reached out and touched him. Now think about that. What an act of kindness. There is something about the human touch that conveys more than mere words could ever convey. Some years ago I was on a a bus traveling from uh, the LAX airport to where you pick up your car rental. And there were some young people coming in the opposite direction and, we, and I noticed I was the oldest one on the bus. I'm noticing that more and more. <laughs> and they were obviously college students and I asked them what they were in LA for and they said, we're here on a mission trip. And I said, what are you gonna be doing? He says, well, our college sends uh, the freshmen out every year to the homeless in Los Angeles. And I said, what are you gonna be doing? He said, we're going to be caring for their feet. And that intrigued me. Rather than just giving a sandwich or a gospel tract, they were gonna physically wash and clean and bandage the damaged feet of homeless people. That's what it means to, to touch a person. Now, you know that we have a passion in this church and your pastor does, for teaching the whole counsel of God. We want all of our people to be thoroughly grounded in sound doctrine, that we know what we believe and why we believe it. But may we never lose the ability to show compassion to hurting people. 1 Corinthians 13, 1, And though I have the gift of prophecy, and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith that I could remove mountains, and have not charity, which is another word for love, I am nothing. Now, would you agree with me that no one was ever as doctrinally sound as Jesus? But no one was ever more compassionate either. 800 years before Jesus came to this earth, a man by the name of Isaiah prophesied that he would. And speaking prophetically in the voice of the coming Messiah, he said this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted and has set me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. 
One of the, the criticisms leveled against Jesus by the Pharisees was that he spent too much time with sinners and the outcast of society. In fact, he was accused by them of being a friend of sinners. May the same accusation be leveled against us today. He said he came to proclaim good news, but to tell people good news, we have to have contact with them. We have to be in proximity to them. We have to touch their lives as Jesus did. And you said, Pastor, isn't it risky? Isn't it risky to send our college students to India? Isn't it risky to send our men to deepest, darkest Africa to, to cross swollen streams? Yes, it is. But it has always been risky to follow close to Jesus. Jesus said, if you're going to follow after me, count the cost first and then take up your cross and follow me. Well, Jesus healed this man. The Bible says uh, he healed him immediately and completely. This was not something that could be explained in any other way than he was touched by the Savior. And when the man said, if you're willing, you can cleanse me, Jesus said, I am willing. Be cleansed. As I've said already, it's not always God's will to heal the sick. We can't understand why. But here's what we know based on the authority of Scripture. It is always His will to forgive the sinner. John 3:16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in Him. There, there's no one here, no matter what you've done, that if you will come to the Lord in contrition and repentance that He'll cast you out. Romans 10 tells us, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. John tells us that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's faithful. He will do it. Verse 14 is, is very surprising to me. After Jesus had healed this man instantly and completely, Scripture says He ordered him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing just as Moses commanded as a testimony to them. So what would happen in the time of Moses as they were traveling there out from Egypt in close proximity to one another? They did not have a, a thorough understanding of microorganisms. And by the way, the, the disease leprosy comes from a bacteria. And they didn't have microscopes in those days, but the Lord of, of hosts knows about bacteria, right? And so he gave them rules and regulations of, of how they had to order their camp for sanitation and, and such things. And one of the rules that he gave them found in the book of Leviticus is that if someone has a skin rash, he's to take that to the priest and he's to examine that because they didn't want leprosy to spread. And so they would isolate that person. And if it, it got better and it cleared up, then the priest had to verify that so he could go back to the community. And in thanksgiving to the Lord, he was to offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving when he was cleansed of that skin condition. And so Jesus says to the man, go and tell no one, but do as Moses commanded. That is fulfill all those obligations you have to be restored back to community. And here is thirdly, the irony of Jesus' command, go and tell no one. Go and tell no one that you've been healed physically. Go back to your normal life. Well, we know from the other gospels that this man disobeyed that commandment. 
For example, in the Gospel of Mark, it says he was so overcome with joy that he went out and spread the news freely. And as I read in my office this week, some of the New Testament commentators were pretty hard on this old boy. They were saying, how dare he, after he'd been healed of such a disease, disobey Jesus by telling other people what he had done. You know, I kind of, I'm not as hard on him because here's a man who was facing certain death and the Lord not only spared his life, he restored him to complete health. And the idea is not that he had any malice in his heart. He was just so overcome with joy, he could not help but tell. And here is the great irony. Those of us who have been born again, we have had our sins cleansed from something infinitely more deadly and terrible than leprosy, and that is our own sinful condition. We are commanded to go and tell all freely or this man was told to tell no one, and yet many of us keep that wonderful good news to ourselves. What a tragedy. We are commanded to go and make disciples of all nations. Jesus said in Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses. You will tell others of what I've done. And yet we are disobedient as this man was. Then we see, fourthly, the pressure of the crowds. Likely the reason that Jesus told the man not to tell others was that it would swell the ranks of the large crowds that were already following him around. Remember, his primary task was not to do miracles. He came to seek and save the lost. He, he wanted to go to every village in that region and we're told there were at least 200 villages in Galilee at that time. And he was going from village to village, synagogue to synagogue, preaching the gospel of faith and repentance. And yet he was finding it hard to move because all the people wanted to, to be entertained by, by the miracles. And so he would often say, don't, don't tell anyone. But the word got out. That, of course, is exactly what happened. It says, but the news about him was spreading even farther. And larger crowds were coming to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. Now, Jesus was having an effective and a growing ministry. If we want to go back to the metaphor of fishing for men... Any of you folks who are, are fishermen know when the fish are biting, you don't leave that spot, right? And so you'd think Jesus would be content to stay where he was and minister to all those who would come, but the Lord had, uh, the Father had different plans for him. He did not want to stay there. In fact, verse 16 says this, but Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness to pray. I mentioned a few weeks ago, I think to some of you are surprised that I am by nature an introvert. And introverts understand the word slip away. <laughs> it, it means when the crowds get too large and you become uncomfortable, you just kind of find the exit and slip on back home. Well, Jesus was not looking for an exit because he hated people. He, he was looking for a chance to slip away because he needed to spend time with his father. This is the necessity, finally, of communion. We think of communion as taking the Lord's Supper together, and it is that, but communion means fellowship, intimacy. And he needed that intimacy with the Father. This is the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. I have reminded you of that several times through this year. And the father of the Protestant Reformation is a man by the name of Martin Luther. And Luther was a very busy man. He was constantly speaking different places. He was much in demand. He was a, a prolific writer. 
And, and this is what Luther once said of a day that was particularly busy. He said, I have so much to do today that I shall need to spend the first three hours in prayer. Luther understood the connection between power and prayer. We've been talking this morning about the power of Jesus, how he spoke the word, he touched a man who was devastated by disease and he was instantly and completely healed. And yet Jesus often, the Bible said, would withdraw to the wilderness. By the way, that, that word wilderness in the Greek simply means deserted places. He would go off to be alone. And remember when Jesus was teaching his disciples how to pray, that's how he taught them. He says, don't make a big show of your prayer life. Don't use flowery language and great repetition, but go into your prayer closet. That is get alone with the Lord and pour your heart out to him. And, and this is what Luther would do. He had so much to do in the name of God that he had to spend time with God so that he could be empowered to do that. Now, here is the obvious truth. If Martin Luther needed to spend time alone with God, we do too, right? Here's an even more obvious truth. If Jesus Christ needed to spend time with the Father, so do you and I, right? He would often do, it was his custom, it was his habit of doing that. And you say, well, it's not very spiritual to talk about your prayer life in terms of a habit. Well, it is spiritual. And here, here would be my advice to you. If you don't have a regular habit of spending time with the Father in prayer, start one. And I know some of you are thinking, I don't have time for that. You don't know my schedule, Pastor. When the alarm clock goes off in the morning to the time I lay my pillow on the head at night, there's not a spare moment. Well, I, I can understand that. I have a, a busy job myself and we have four small children at home and I understand what it means to be busy. Someone said something to me this past week that has, has really stuck with me and I've been reminded of it every time I'm tempted to say I don't have time to X. He said, next time you're tempted to say I don't have time, instead say what you really mean. What you really mean is that is not a priority to me right now. Because the truth is all of us have the same amount of time in a day, right? The richest person to the poorest, to the most educated, to the most ignorant. We all are given by God one at a time, 24 hours in the day. And when we say, I don't have time to pray, I don't have time to study my Bible, I don't have time to fellowship with other Christians, what we really mean is that is not a priority to me. And when you make yourself say that out loud, it hurts, doesn't it? Now, I'm not scolding. I know all of you are busy. You have lots of things going on in your life. But is there anything more important than spending time with the Father? I, I think not. And Jesus understood that. He modeled that for us. And in, in some way, his power was connected to his, his prayer life. And so is ours. Corey Ten Boom says this, don't pray when you feel like it. Make an appointment with God and keep it. Amen is powerful when he's on his knees. That's what the Bible says. James says the effectual prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Often slip away to deserted places to pray to the Lord. One of my heroes is Charles Spurgeon, a preacher from another period. 
known for his power in the pulpit. And, and this is what he says about our topic this morning. He asked the rhetorical question, why is it that some Christians, although they hear many sermons, make but slow advance in the divine life? Now that was a, an old English way of saying progress and sanctification. Why is it that some people, though they, they, they come to church every Sunday and they listen to, to good sermons on the radio in our context, why is it they don't make much progress in sanctification? He answers his own question. Because they neglect their closets. He's not talking about their wardrobe. He's talking about their prayer closet. They go days and weeks and months without spending time in meaningful prayer. And do not thoughtfully meditate on God's word. From such folly deliver us, O Lord. Charles Spurgeon called it absolute folly to try to do the Lord's work in one's own strength. He called it folly, something that is destined to fail, to try to live the Christian life or make progress in sanctification without times of prayer and Bible study. And so, dear friends, this is Christianity 101 today. Do you have a quiet time? Do you have a time set aside every day, either in the morning, at noontime, or in the evening? I know some of you aren't morning people. There's a good time of day. And I think the Lord Jesus modeled that. He would often get up before the others and they'd have to go looking for him after the sun came up. He was spending time with his father. But if you can't do that, set aside a few minutes at, at the lunch break. I, when I was in college, I, and I probably a period of my life where I was growing spiritually at a pace as never before, one of the reasons was I set aside the lunch hour for Bible study and prayer and, and listening to sermons. Or maybe it's in the evening. Whenever you have the opportunity, when the kids are in bed, make an appointment every day to spend time with the Lord. Can you imagine if you went to your doctor with a complaint of not having any energy or power? And he said, well, well, tell me about your diet. And you say, well, I haven't eaten anything in three weeks. I, I think we have a diagnosis, right? Did you know that the Bible said of itself that it is our spirit, spiritual milk and meat? We can no more go days and weeks and months without taking in the word of God and expect to have spiritual power than a person could go a month without eating and, and expect to be strong and vital. And yet... That's what many of us do. I encourage you today, make a commitment right here and now that starting today, you're going to steal away from the world and spend time in prayer and Bible study with the Lord. And I believe in just a short amount of time, you're going to experience spiritual strength and power that you've never known before. Let's pray for the Lord's help to do that. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word and Lord, I, I want to confess to you there have been times and periods of my life, Lord, that uh, I, I've neglected the Scripture. Lord, some days even now, I just don't feel like it. But I'm reminded of Corey Ten Boom's encouragement to, to pray even when you don't feel like it. Study the Bible when you don't feel like it. Uh, Lord, I pray, Father, that uh, every member of our church would commit themselves to the daily intake of your word and to consistent times of prayer alone with you, Father, communing with you, hearing from your spirit, Father. 
Father, I, I pray that that would manifest itself in spiritual power. And, and Lord, I, I pray it would lead to awakening and revival as we catch a taste of what it means to, to walk close to Jesus. And, and yet, Lord, we need to count the cost because following close to Jesus in his footsteps has never been easy. It's dangerous. That's why he instructed us to count the cost and to take up our cross daily. Father, it's what you call us to do. And if we're to have intimacy with you, if we're to be the church you want us to be, that's what it's gonna take. So Father, help all of us to do whatever is necessary to prioritize our life according to your word. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.